Have you ever wondered, have you ever wondered how the interaction went between Abram and Sarai after the Pharaoh brought her back and said, here is your wife? Remember, Abram had lied to Pharaoh and even told Sarai to, uh, to lie so that he, Abram, could keep himself out of danger. Sarai, the beautiful and faithful bride, was supposed to just let herself be taken by another, by another man, in this case, Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. And Abram got to live and get paid. Perfect, right? Uh, this was Genesis 13, by the way. <laughs> this is what we talked about last week. I would imagine that when Sarah walked back to Abram, she, she might not have been moving too quickly. Or maybe if there were a bunch of people there with Abram, which there certainly were, she would have just walked to the other side of the group. You know, maybe Abram's here and, Sarah! And she's over there. Kind of envision Abram seeing Sarai presented to him again by Pharaoh. He's so elated. There's his precious bride. He cries out for joy and starts that slow motion run to Sarai as she diverts past and goes into the group. That first conversation probably would have been awkward. And maybe it was something like this, Abram, I'm ready to leave now. But if Abram was the one to speak, might have started with a long so, like, so, um, what did you have for dinner? Something awkward like that. We have one of those potentially long, awkward so's at the beginning of, and actually this is Genesis 13 this week, that was from Genesis 12. Genesis 13, verse 1, is where we begin this week. We read it that way. So, Abram went up from Egypt, after all that transpired. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had, and Lot with him into the Negev. Remember, that's the south area of Israel. Now, Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver, and in gold. And the word for very, for very rich, is the same word that was used for severe in relation to the famine in the previous chapter. Okay, so Abram went to Egypt due to a heaviness. That's the maybe direct translation of the word, due to a heaviness of famine. And he returns now with a heaviness of wealth. It's an interesting way to term that, isn't it? And he journeyed, verse 3, he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning. He's going back to the start. Between Bethel and Ai to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. Abram goes back to the beginning, and he goes to the altar that he had first built and calls on the name of the Lord. He proclaimed the name of Yahweh. Uh, What didn't he do in Egypt? Do you remember? No altars, no proclamation of the name of the Lord, none of that. Abram didn't go to Egypt on a missions trip, did he? Certainly didn't end up like that at all, in any way. Uh, This return and this worship, this proclamation, serves as a sign for us of Abram's repentance. There wasn't any of that going on in Egypt because there was one who had the heart of Abram in Egypt, and that was Abram. 
And now he's repenting. He's putting his trust and his faith in the God who had called him, and he goes back. Remember, Abram sinned against God. Abram abandoned his role as a husband. Abram lied to Pharaoh, etc. And then after being rebuked, and he was rebuked by the, the pagan king, and seeing God fulfill his promises that God had made to Abram in spite of Abram's disobedience, and that momentary lack of trust in God, Abram returns to the land of promise, goes back to the place where his outward worship of Yahweh before those Canaanite people began, and he calls in the name of the Lord. This is good news. And good news for Abram, God's faithfulness includes his forgiveness. That's good, good news for us as well. Remember 1 John 1, nine says this, If we confess our sins, he, God, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Why is it just? So he's faithful and just. We're going to see this in this passage, and we're going to look at it again towards the end of the message this morning. But why is this just? And the reason is because of the perfection of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. It covers all of our sin. Our sin, not in part, but the whole, was nailed to the cross in Christ Jesus. So it's not that God just turned a blind eye to our sin and said, oh, it's not that bad, not a big deal, just do better, okay? No, it was paid for. All sin is judged. But to those who are in Christ, our sin was judged there, in full, in the person of Jesus Christ. So God is both forgiving and faithfulness, and he's just at the same time. Now, what should we expect to see since Abram has made this dramatic, it's dramatic, isn't it? Going back to the first altar, going back there, this dramatic return. This really looks good, right? This looks amazing. Uh, now, for my own testimony, I was saved at a camp. I put my faith and trust in Christ at a camp in North Carolina, okay? Imagine, imagine if I were to fall into sin. Don't imagine too hard, okay? But if I were to fall into great sin, and then in an act to show just how serious I was, I drove down to that campground, kneeled down in grief at that ledge where I sat and prayed the prayer and shouted. At that point now, not when I was 16, but if I'm going down there now, shouting and screaming and crying and said I would never commit that sin again, that I was going to give my life back to God. Be so dramatic, wouldn't it? Such a dramatic thing. But what would you expect to see from me and in me in the next days? Weeks, months, years, a life committed to Christ? Hopefully, right? And I mean hopefully just in the sense of like you looking at the life of another person. You can't make decisions for another person. But that's what you would hope to see in them if they have this evidence of regret and this crying out to God. Would I see a life committed to Christ or coming home now and saying, give me all my stuff back now? Do you understand what I'm saying? If I commit sin and I go back and go back to the place of beginning or go to people and say, oh, I'm so miserable. Oh, I'm so upset. Oh, I'm never going to do that again. I'm going to obey God. I'm going to da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Now give me my stuff back. Because I said that stuff. Is that repentance? And the answer is no. Okay, so we look at what Abram did. He went back to that first altar he sacrificed there. He prayed. He proclaimed the name of the Lord in that place. That's great. That's, that's the sign 
of what's to come. And we're also going to look at what's to come. Okay, and we're going to see that coming here in just a minute. But remember, in this discussion, there is a difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. Godly grief, which is of the Lord, and worldly grief, which is of our own sinful hearts. One is concerned with God's glory, and the other is concerned with me not getting what I want. One results in repentance, a change, and one is only pageantry. A desire of change, but a change of all the stuff I'm not getting. It's not me that needs to change. Second Corinthians chapter 7 says this in verse 9 through 11. It says, as it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, this is Paul writing to the church at Corinth, but because you were grieved into repenting, for you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. And that's not like getting saved the first time. It means like, or the first time, the only time. Not that kind of salvation, but a salvation from the consequences of continual sin. Whereas worldly grief produces death. And... Just a thought here. How can a person say they have eternal life when they are repeatedly, continually rushing headlong towards death? Does that make sense? If I pray the prayer, okay, I can do that for a number of reasons, for a number of motivations. In fact, I prayed the prayer when I was five years old. Okay? And my parents were appropriately excited about that. But in my five little five-year-old heart, And everybody has a different story on this, right? But in my little five-year-old heart, I wanted a couple things. I wanted my mommy to think I was great. And I wanted grape juice next time we had communion at church. Okay? There are a lot of motivations for us to pray the prayer. I could be a 35-year-old man and want this dude to shut up and leave me alone and pray the prayer. There could be lots of motivations. Where is the fruit going to be in that moment? or in my life that God has taken and given vitality to and allowed righteousness to be infused and attributed to this person and then progressive sanctification taking root and happening in their life. Jesus did say, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow. Is it working? Hey, everybody. So Genesis 13.1. No, I'm just kidding. We'll, we'll go for where we were. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 9 through 11. Now we're at verse 11. We've seen godly grief and worldly grief. Four, see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you. What earnestness this godly grief has produced in you. But also what eagerness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, meaning to totally avoid and, and rid myself of the sin. What indignation, not against people, but of the wickedness in my heart. What fear, a fear of God, a a drastic desire to not want to displease him. What longing, what zeal, what punishment. This is not beating myself up. Okay, Martin Luther tried to do that as a monk before he actually put his faith in Christ to try to beat sin out of himself. But it's not talking about that. It's talking about the sin. 
Kind of like when Jesus said, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. He was speaking of that as an illustration, right? At every point, it says in this verse, you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. Meaning, you were sincere in your verbalation. Ver- Man, the word's not even coming to my mind. You were sincere when you verbalized your repentance because I see it being lived out in your life. Does that make sense? And so, with Abram going back to this altar, we should expect great things. Uh, Worldly grief is followed by more worldliness. Godly grief produces repentance, which means it produces change. A change in thinking resulting in a change of desires, which results in a change of actions. This is repentance. And you can't see that in a single emotional response. Does that make sense? So, if we were curious to see what kind of sorrow Abraham was experiencing, we should just go on and read. So, verse 5 in Genesis 13 says this. Here's the test. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together. For their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. So there it is. This town wasn't big enough for the two of them. There's no way. And not just the two of them, but also for the Canaanites and the Perizzites who were also there nearby. So Abram and Lot cannot stay together. But here's some truth to this. Abram is older, so culturally he has dibs on the land. He gets to say where he wants to be. Uh, God chose Abram and promised promised him dibs on the land, on the entire area, on the entire nation. So Abram would seemingly be within his rights to tell Lot to go take a hike, literally. He could have told Lot to leave Canaan entirely. He could have restricted Lot to a, a less fertile area, saying, you know, we are too big to be together. Why don't you go over there where there's hardly any grass, hardly any vegetation, He could have told Lot to do that and and watch his livestock progressively dwindle down at the lack of resources. Do you get the idea? These are the things that Abram could have done. But let's see what he chooses to do. Verse 8. Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me, between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? So here, look at everything. Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, and they're, they're facing south right now, by the way. They're in the north of Israel facing south. You take the left hand, then I'll go to the right. If you take the right hand, then I'll go to the left. We just saw here the outworking of faith. The outworking of repentance. Abram initiated the discussion for resolution. Realize that? He didn't say, I'll only say sorry if you say sorry first. Hey, your herdsmen are being mean to my herdsmen. Not that kind of an attitude. Not a wait it out and see what kind of thing happens attitude. There was conflict, and Abram pursued peace. And he pursued it sacrificially. This is a change, isn't it? Proverbs seventeen fourteen says this, The beginning of strife is like letting out water, so quit before the coral breaks out. Abram did that. Abram speaks kindly, gently to Lot. The words, let there be in the Hebrew, would be the equivalent of saying, please. So he's even using kind words in his discussion with Lot. 
Abram also looks out for his brother, it says in this passage. The word that was translated as kinsman is the word for brothers. It was obviously translated as kinsman because Abram is Lot's uncle. But the word choice reminds us of another man, doesn't it? Who was asked if he was his brother's keeper. And the answer was supposed to be, yes, you are. And Abram shows that, yes, he is. Abram was willing to benefit Lot even at his own expense. This was not scheming. This was not self-serving. This was selfless kindness. And it was driven by faith. God promised Abram the land. God promised Abram blessing. God promised Abram a nation. And Lot's choice, whether to the right or to the left, was going to have no consequence. It was not going to jeopardize any of God's promises. So Abram had no fear in putting the land before Lot and giving him the option of the right or the left. Abram was now walking by faith and not by sight. Let's go back and see how Lot did. Verse 10. Lot lifted up his eyes. Uh Uh-oh. And he saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord. Eden? That went really well. Like the land of Egypt. That went really well, too. In the direction of Zoar. And this was, it says in this passage in parentheses, this was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Foreshadowing. Fairly direct foreshadowing. This is not going to go well. So, uh, because of his sight, when he looked up and saw, Lot chose for himself, it says, all the Jordan Valley. And Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. So, so Abram and Lot face south from the northern end of Canaan. Abram graciously offers Lot to take the land to the left or to the right. And Lot takes him up on all of his offer and takes all of the land to the left. And things literally went south from there for Lot. All the way south to Sodom. Okay, near the southern half of the Dead Sea. Verse 12 says this, Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley. Lot was offered land, but he ultimately chose the city and moved his tent as far as Sodom. It doesn't mean like he's barely getting into it. We're going to see in the next passage that he's in it. As far as is a word, word usage there basically saying, wouldn't you believe he even went all the way to Sodom? Okay? It says in verse 13, Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. Double foreshadowing. Definitely not good. And it means to double up the wicked and great sinners. There is a sin of a nature there in Sodom that is above and beyond what you would expect men to be involved in. So after this act of faith and generosity on the part of Abram, God chooses to reassure now Abram and reaffirm his promises. Verse 14, the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, okay, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. Where Abram was located, remember, up in the north of Canaan, and he was on a high spot there called Ramoth Hazor. And from that place, you can look out and see to the west, the Mediterranean Sea. 
you can look to the north and see Mount Hermon, which is now in present-day Syria. You can look to the east and see the Jordan River. And you can see all the way down to the Dead Sea. So God really was showing Abram the land at this moment. And God promises the land and the people who would descend from Abram and Sarai. Verse 16 says, I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring can also be counted. And it can't, right? Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So in faith, Abram was to walk the land, seeing the unseen, believing in the promises of God to come. So Abram moved his tent. Okay, so the idea here is that eventually, after walking around, Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. Remember, Hebron would later be the headquarters of King David before they permanently went into Jerusalem. And there at Hebron, he built an altar again to the Lord. So, so far so good. So far so good for Abram. Evidence, fruit, right, of his repentance? Absolutely. Abram is showing evidence of true repentance. So way to go, Abram. And now Abram can finish worshiping God at that altar. He can watch and, and pray as the offering burns and then, and then head home and wait for God to give him and Sarai children and enjoy the rest of his days, right? Good story. Except there was a war in the promised land. And they captured Lot and all of his family. So that bit of repentance so far, there's more to be seen. Let me summarize the beginning of Genesis 14 for us, okay? The beginning of Genesis 14, there's a lot of names that I would have a hard time saying eloquently, and we'd have a hard time reading eloquently, so let me just give you a, give you a summary of the first part of Genesis 14. There are four kings, four kingdoms that unite together, and their territories stretch diagonally along the Fertile Crescent. Remember the Tigris and Euphrates coming out from the Gulf on the other side of Iraq, coming up the Tigris and Euphrates uh, from modern-day Iraq, areas north of Israel up to modern-day Turkey. So all the way down that whole stretch to covering the area above Israel up in modern-day Turkey, which, by the way, would have been where Haran is as well. So that's a big territory, isn't it? These four kings that cover all of this land. These four kings unite together. Now there's also five kings, five other kings that are united together, and they're all near the southern, southern portion of the Dead Sea. So four kings covering from Turkey down to the bottom of Iraq, and five kings that are just by the bottom of the Dead Sea. Four big territories, four big-time kings, five minor leaguers, <laughs> if you will. Okay, spring training's coming. Or it's actually here already, isn't it? These five little kings here. Uh, these five kings all served or they had to pay tribute or services to one of the four kings until they stopped. Okay, The service was in exchange for the big king. And his name, we'll say it because he comes up quite a bit. His name is Kedor Laomer. Kedor Laomer. Uh, the, the exchange for them paying him, he wouldn't destroy them. Good deal? Okay, It would have went down like this. Kedor Laomer says... I don't actually want to live where you are. I don't like that area. But if you don't give me what I want, I'm going to destroy you and take your land. That's basically what's happening here, okay? The five kings say, yes, sir. Yes, sir, for 12 years, okay? And this is what would happen. If you think about this happening over and over and over again, the big king says, 
give me or I will destroy you. The small kingdom has no choice but to give. And then the big king can say, this is very simplified, right? Big king, little king. Big king can say, oh, you know what? I want more. You know what? I want more. Uh, how about some more? And eventually, what does the little kingdom have left? Nothing. And so big king has just taken all the resources away from the little kingdom. And even if they wanted to defend themselves now, what do they have left to do so? Does that make sense? It's kind of a way of literally sucking the life out of this kingdom over time. So that when it's time to come, they've got nothing left. And eventually, that happens. The little kingdoms, and this happened in Israel too, they have to come to a point where they say, um, we can't do that anymore. We have nothing to give you. Well, if you don't give it to me, then I'm going to come and destroy you. Okay. <laughs> and that's what happened, okay? That's what happened. So they come down. These four kings unite together, and they come. Uh, the military campaign was vast in scope. The four big kings joined together, and instead of just going straight to the Dead Sea region, they first took out six other kings and kingdoms on their way. Okay? In a way that swooped around the area and underneath the dead, where the Dead Sea was to close off any exit route that they could have taken. There was nowhere for them to run. And if you look at that in your mind on a map, and you go all the way from that bay at the southern end of the Tigris and Euphrates, all the way up and over to north where Turkey is, and then all the way down across the Mediterranean, and then back across the southern portion to block off any exit routes, that's basically the size of the Babylonian Empire when Jerusalem fell. So this is no little military operation. This is massive. And these kings just sweep through and do this. And they conquer these five kings. There was nowhere for them to run. They lost the battle. They took all the spoil, these four kings, they took all the spoil and the people, including the house of Lot, who was a prominent member of the society of Sodom. Okay, so let's pick up then at verse 13. This is Genesis 14, 13. It says, Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew. And the word Hebrew might mean like a descendant of Eber, which is one of Abram's great-greats. Or it also could mean it could be derived from a word that means um, an immigrant. Someone who's not from around here. Kind of an interesting idea there, isn't it? Because um, that's not where Abram was from. <laughs> he was from Ur. But he was living at the time at the Oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, the brother of Eskol and Aner, and these were allies of Abram. Okay, so just a note here from this verse. If for some reason my nephews in Virginia were captured by some invasion, okay, we're not, we're not prophesying anything, okay? But let's say that were to happen, and some other ram, random Virginian who happened to live in that part of the state, for whatever reason, decided to drive up 127, where he probably should have gone to Windsor first or something like that, but he's going to go up to Sault Ste. Marie, so he's driving up 127. Do you really think that he would cross the shepherd exit and go, you know what, I'm going to stop in Mount Pleasant and let Andy know about his nephews? Would that happen? What is the likelihood of, of some person who lives in, the, in, a, in a city in Virginia knowing about my nephews, knowing that I live in Mount Pleasant and wanting to stop on his way out as he's running away to come talk to me about it. That wouldn't happen. 
Agreed? <laughs> that wouldn't happen. That would be pretty ridiculous. But Abram and Lot, this just tells us the significance of these men in this area. People know who they are. They know to talk to people. They know to stop by and inform them of what's happening. People in the region knew who they were. They even had official allies. I realize the countries are bigger here in the West right now, but has anyone recently signed a personal treaty or a trade deal with Canada recently? Has anybody signed a personal treaty or trade deal with the United States of America recently because we're so big that we have to conduct business that way in the country we actually live in? Well, no, right? None of that has transpired. Yet Abram has gotten to be so prominent, his wealth so heavy, that the other kings, are they don't know what to do with him. And they're starting to figure out to sign peace treaties with him. This is how big it is. This is how big he is in the region, in the, in the country. Okay? Abram was an incredibly prominent and influential individual in the region, but he wasn't a king. He wasn't a king. Does that make sense? Remember what those big four kings came and did? They missed somebody. Because Abram wasn't a king, he was never attacked. He was never attacked. So verse 14, when Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, which Abram evidently had. Okay, when you had that much and were protecting that many people, you had to be prepared. But those people were born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. It wasn't called Dan at the time because Dan is one of the tribes of Israel, but that part of the northernmost part of, of Israel, that was a, about a 120-mile trek. They went a long ways. And the word translated led forth, where he led forth his trained men, that can mean to empty out or to unsheathe. So the imagery here is that Abram unsheathed his sword, which happened to be 318 trained men who had lived with and served with him their whole lives. And the phrase, born in his house, would have been a term of endearment. These men loved and respected Abram and were willing to fight for him. Do we see more of Abram's faith on display here? He's gone from lying to Pharaoh, losing his wife in the process to save his own skin, to taking 318 men with him to go fight against an army of four kings, that have just conquered 11 kings and kingdoms. Verse 15 says this, And he divided his forces against them by night, little strategy, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. He didn't just beat them, he chased them all the way into another country. It says, Then he brought back all the possessions. Those five little kings worth and also brought back his kinsman Lot, again, brother, with his possessions and the women and the people. So four allied kings come in. They invaded the promised land and mowed over every opponent except, except the one they didn't know about, except the one they'd forgotten about, the one that God had given the land to, the one that God had promised to curse whoever dishonored him. So let's take a look at our three main characters, if you will, from today's narrative. First of all, Abram. What's Abram doing in these passages? 
Abram is now back to what he was doing before Egypt happened. Abram is following the Lord, building altars, proclaiming his name in the land that his descendants were to be given. And he is believing the promises of the Lord and therefore bravely defending his nephew, even in battle. What's Lot doing? Lot is taking what he thinks is best for himself. What he thinks, right? What he thinks is best for himself. Gradually moving closer to Sodom until until he dwells within it. So we go from tents to permanence. And he is suffering the consequences. Both for himself and bringing about consequences for his family and for Uncle Abraham, who brought 318 men out to battle to save them. Uh, This is a great reminder to us. We do not get to choose the consequences of our selfish choices. We don't get to choose that. We don't get to choose all the people it's going to impact negatively. That's not within our grasp. Remember, if we contrast uh, the words love and lust... And we don't think, it's not like in a sexual term, it's just uh, at its root what it is. Remember, love is giving of myself sacrificially for the benefit of another. Abram did that today. Lust is taking from another what I think is best for me, but which proves to be my destruction. And that's what Lot did today. Okay, we know later that God's going to intervene and save Lot from out of this. Uh, what's to come in Sodom. But he's pursuing that angle right now. Okay? Now, what is God doing? What is God doing? Well, we see him reminding Abram that his promises, that God's promises are still true. They're still sure. That his promises for Abram are for Abram and his descendants and, and not for Lot. God is actively blessing Abram. He's blessing those who bless Abram. And cursing those who dishonor Abram. We see this happening even in this text today. And his activity, God's actions, are promised unconditionally. When Abram does poorly, God is faithful. When Abram does well, God is faithful. He never changes. And this is called immutability. Immutability. Think of the the word there. It means that he never changes. You see the root word in there, immutability? Uh, Go back to some of your favorite childhood show, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Maybe some of you are thinking of like the X-Men or something who are mutants. Why are they called that? Because they mutated. They changed. God is immutable. He cannot change. He will not change. So Abram went from a man of faith and obedience to a man full of fear, not trusting God, not proclaiming the glory of God, putting his wife in danger to save his own skin, and then back in his repentance to a man full of courage and generosity, giving Lot the better land, building altars and moving about as God commanded, even going to battle to protect his extended family. How is this possible? Well, because God is merciful. Abram didn't get what he deserved. When Egypt happened, was that the end of the story? No, because God is merciful. 
God is gracious. Abram was promised what he could not have ever earned. Why did the story start? Because Abram was so awesome? No, because God is gracious. God is faithful. God was sovereignly doing exactly what he said he would, regardless of Abram's excellence of obedience or the lack thereof. And God is immutable. Because God in his holiness and righteousness and everything else, every bit of his nature, his character, because none of that will ever change, there's no way that anything he says he will do will not get done. Abraham lived by faith, and then by sight, and then by faith. God was faithful, and faithful, and faithful. His promises are secured by his perfect, unchanging character. Do you know why God's promises are sure? Because he's never going to change. He is perfect in his holiness. That's why we trust in him. His mercies are new every morning. He is faithful to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, a legitimate question that could stem from these truths about God is, is this. Well, what about his judgment and wrath? We don't like that part. What about God's judgment and wrath? Now, I came across these verses this week from Exodus 34. These are verses 6 and 7. It says this, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, yes, slow to anger, that's great, abounding in steadfast Love and faithfulness sounds wonderful. Keeping steadfast love for thousands. It's not just for me. That's great. Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. That's wonderful. But who will by no means clear the guilty. You might say, what? Uh, this might seem like a, contra- a contradiction. Like God isn't perfect. Then maybe, maybe he does change how can, he, how can he forgive iniquity and transgression and sin, but then by no means clear the guilty? That doesn't seem like it makes sense. It's a contradiction. But it's actually no contradiction at all. How can God be both merciful and gracious and also refuse to clear the guilty uh, to just let sin go? How can God say sin is forgiven and sin must be punished without changing who he is? And the answer, a substitute. Jesus Christ lived a perfect, righteous life. He became our spotless substitute, our sacrifice. Jesus took upon himself our sin. 1 Peter 2.24 says, He himself bore our sins. So that in his death, the judgment of God, the just judgment of God, that we rightly deserve, was poured out on him. He was executed. He was separated from God the Father, enduring the wrath of God in our place. And even in that, we might say, well, how dare God be like that? Why is that okay? We're not allowed to act like that. Why? Why? Why not? I'm a sinner. I am not holy. I have no righteousness of my own. 
I'm not better than anybody else, and neither are any of you. So how dare we? But what's God like? If God was just like you and me, then he's a jerk. But he's not, right? God is holy. God is righteous. He is our creator. And he is rightfully our judge. And so it's just. So Christ's death was necessary. He doesn't clear the guilt. It needs to be punished. And Christ did that. He stood in our place on our behalf and God's wrath was poured out, and justice was served. And three days later, Jesus rose from the dead, defeating death and hell. This is the gospel. This is how God shows us mercy and grace and judges our sin. This is how his righteous wrath is poured out, and we are counted as righteous at the same time. This is how our sin resulted in separation, and we will be able to dwell with him forever. It's Christ. We change. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were graciously saved. All those who have repented and put their faith and trust in Christ and called on him as our Lord and Savior, we have been saved, born again, brought to life. And even through, uh, even though the righteousness of Jesus Christ has been given to us, just as it was given to Abraham, remember Romans 4 says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. He got it the same way we do. Even with that, we are still progressively being conformed into the likeness of Christ. Why aren't we just like him yet? Because we grow progressively. God's working on us to make us like him. But as we continue on in life, we can be strengthened by our faith. Strengthened in our faith. Bolstered in our obedience. Now, even when the world seems to be sweeping in around us, when it looks like we're surrounded, we can be bolstered in our obedience by remembering that our God never changes. He is always faithful, and he will do everything that he's promised to do. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you and praise you for who you are. We thank you that you have eternally existed in holiness, in righteousness, goodness, in love, and that you have always existed and you will always exist in all of those ways. That you'll never change. And God, um, we thank you for your grace that you've given to us, the mercy that you've given to us. We do. And we certainly desperately need change. I pray, Lord, that um, if there were to be a person here today that has never put their faith and trust in Christ, Lord, that you would work in their heart to bring them to faith, to salvation, that they would turn to you, turn to the sacrifice of Christ on the cross for their sin and, and put their faith in you. God, if there were to be a person here today who has prayed the prayer for other reasons and for other means, but who in their times of sorrow continues to rush headlong towards death, that they would see the truth of your word from Second Corinthians and they would put their faith in Christ and truly repent. God, please do that work in their heart. God, may we together as your people humbly come before you in thankfulness 
for your goodness to us, for your grace to us, your mercy to us, your love for us. And may we honor you as we go from this place because you are a faithful God. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.